Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, coming to you from the STAT newsroom here in Boston. I'm Rebecca Robbins, and I'm recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. And Adam Feuerstein is on vacation, though of course you wouldn't deduce that from looking at his Twitter. No, you wouldn't. But it's Thursday, April 19th, and here's what's on the docket this week. So there were some great big market-moving lung cancer data this week, and we'll talk about what it means for the two companies at war for market share. Pharma advertisers are gathered in Boston for their big annual conference. We ask, why hasn't the much-feared congressional crackdown on pharma ads ever materialized? America's favorite vampire squid, Goldman Sachs, got everybody mad on the internet this week by raising a loaded question. Is curing disease actually bad for business? And finally, the biotech company Ultragenics did something weird when it announced the price of its new rare disease drug. We'll unpack what went down and why it matters on the eve of what's being billed as President Trump's first big speech on drug pricing. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. Let's talk about the big headline from the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, AARC. So that was new lung cancer data on Merck's blockbuster immunotherapy, Keytruda. So the data, to put it lightly, looked really, really good. And Damien, you spoke to an oncologist who called the data practice changing. I did. So basically, zooming out and trying to make it as brief as possible, Merck is looking at newly diagnosed lung cancer patients and testing whether combining Keytruda with chemotherapy would do better than chemotherapy alone. And what they found out is that over the course of a year, patients who got Merck's drug were half as likely to die than those who just got standard chemo. And so where practice changing comes into play is chemotherapy is the standard of care right now for this patient population. And what all the oncologists I talked to concluded is that the standard of care from now on should include Merck's drug. And so everyone was watching for how Merck's data on Keytruda would compare to the data that Bristol-Myers Squibb presented at AACR on its competing drug, Opdivo. And the consensus seemed pretty clear, right? Merck's data looked better than Bristol's data. And don't get me wrong, Bristol's data weren't bad, but it was pretty clear that compared to Bristol, Merck has more data and it's on a group of patients that's larger and more genetically diverse. And part of why that matters is that there was a time when Bristol-Myers Squibb was like the hegemon in immuno-oncology. They were ahead of Merck in sales for many years, and that's come to flip over a fairly short period of time for interesting and debatable reasons. I looked at the numbers quarter by quarter, rather I stole them from Brad Longcar's website, um, but Keytruda is closing in on Optivo in sales terms. And I think all this begs the question, right, you know, how did we arrive at this tortoise in the hare situation? You know, I think a lot of observers would point to a pretty key clinical trial failure that came back in the summer of, of 2016. And that was when uh, Bristol's Optivo uh, failed in a study testing it uh, for a first-line treatment for patients uh, diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. And that really kind of changed the game, right? And thus ensued a series of unfortunate events for Bristol-Myers Squibb and fortunate events for Merck. And now Merck's little tumor-killing tortoise, I guess, is poised to take the lead. 
And so unsurprisingly, Bristol is going into high drive to convince America's oncologists that in fact, what we have just described here is not the case. And that in fact, Opdivo is just as good as Merck's uh, Keytruda. So I think there was kind of a memorable uh, incident earlier this week. Um, Bristol's chief scientific officer, Tom Lynch, was defending Opdivo to a crowd of analysts and investors at AACR. And Lynch turned to the soft drinks industry to produce a pretty memorable metaphor. Here's what he had to say. You saw in the New York Times this morning that Roy Herbst said point blank, these are Coke and Pepsi in lung cancer, okay? And that reflects my belief in this as well. I believe that Opdivo and Pembroke are similar drugs in lung cancer. When you see differences between drugs and how they perform, almost certainly, in my opinion, reflects differences in trial design and patient populations. So first of all, bless Tom Lynch, who has only been away from Massachusetts General Hospital for like a year. So he hasn't been fully corporatized and he still occasionally says interesting things, which is a rarity among biopharma executives. But it's interesting what he just said, that the differences are in trial design and patient populations. Because it's like, if the antibodies are the same and these differences are to blame for, or they explain the disparity in the quality of the results that people observe, that just means that's an indictment of Bristol-Myers Squibb. Like, if, who, who designed the trial? You did. No, I think that's right. I think Brad Longcar put it well when he tweeted that what Bristol was saying there is essentially like the head coach of a team saying the only difference in the game is that we were outcoached. Exactly. And it's sort of a fascinating wrinkle, too, when you talk to experts who I defer to because I don't know anything, but they all pretty much agree that Optivo and Keytruda are either almost entirely identical or entirely identical. So explaining differing results is either or both a compliment to Merck or an indictment of Bristol-Myers. And as much as I think we appreciated the Coke and Pepsi metaphor, not everyone was quite as impressed. Uh, Tim Anderson, he's an analyst at Sanford C. Bernstein and Company, pointed out that, you know, if you really look at the numbers, they don't actually support Bristol's sort of elaborate metaphor here. Coke commands about double the market share that Pepsi commands. You could certainly look at, at the number here when it comes to uh, Merck and, and Bristol selling immunotherapy drugs to show kind of a more skewed comparison uh, than I think Bristol would like to see. I actually kind of wish they had extended the metaphor. So like the Roche drug is RC Cola or like the AstraZeneca one is Tab. You know, Pfizer's drug could even be Shasta. I should say here in the interest of full disclosure that I was an employee of 7up in the summer of 2006 and my work with the company did not inform the opinion shared on this podcast nor any of my coverage. I don't want to live with the uncertainties of hep C. Or wonder whether I should seek treatment. When you're close to the people you love, does psoriasis ever get in the way of a touching moment? If you, if have, you have moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis and you're talking to your doctor about your medication, this is Humira. So it wasn't that long ago that some sort of congressional crackdown on pharma advertising seemed imminent. But that, of course, never materialized. Rebecca, why not? So you're right, Damien. You know, in the past couple of years, we've seen groups like the American Medical Association calling for an outright ban on direct-to-consumer pharma ads, or at the very least, requiring that they include prices in those ads. Um, and federal lawmakers have introduced a number of pieces of legislation that would reduce or end entirely the tax breaks that drug advertisers can take. 
So most recently, it looked like the big tax overhaul that became law late last year was going to be the place where the industry's beloved tax break went to die. But then that didn't happen. And once again, as has occurred for generations, pharma advertisers dodged the bullet. And one of the big reasons that the industry has been able to beat back these efforts to constrain what they do or end it entirely um, has been a longtime advertising industry lobbyist. Uh, his name is Jim Davidson. So I called up Davidson right after he addressed a big crowd of pharma advertisers gathered in Boston this week. He had some interesting things to say about the threats facing his industry. He said that the industry knows where to rally support to fight back threats like this. Uh, you know, he, he made the point that that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll win the next time. Um, but he was very pleased that they did beat back what um, could have amounted to a some $200 billion tax on uh, pharma ads and the rest of the ad advertising industry broadly. And he's right about how they can never predict the next time they'll be in this fight. And they're not even currently out of the woods, right? Right. So the industry dodged a bullet uh, when that language that would have eliminated pharma's tax write-off um, didn't make it into the big tax bill. But there's still a bill pending. It was introduced uh, last month by Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill, and it would get rid of uh, pharma's ability to deduct those direct-to-consumer advertising expenses. What's kind of interesting, and like, not to make my man Jim's point for him, is people often say, oh, it's crazy that drug companies can deduct their advertising expenses. I feel like people don't often put that in the context of everyone can. And so when the likes of Jim get on stage, I've seen him speak, he points out that we do regulate advertising for some industries, like cigarettes and alcohol, but why on earth would Humira, for example, or any drug that ostensibly treats a disease, be treated like camel cigarettes when it comes to advertising their product? I think that's actually kind of an effective point. You're right, Damien. That is a good point. And it's also a point that lobbyists like Jim Davidson are making to very powerful people. You know, as President Trump famously said, pharma has a lot of lobbies, lobbyists, and a lot of power. And you asked Jim Davidson about basically politics, the Trump administration, the upcoming midterm elections. What does he think the future holds for his beloved pharma ads? You know, it was interesting to hear him reflect on the political situation. Um, you know, I asked him about the Trump administration. How favorable have they been compared to the Obama administration? And, you know, he, he said he doesn't really know the Trump administration's position on drug ads. It's a little too in the weeds compared to kind of the broader themes of drug pricing um, that they have been vocal about. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the midterms could be very consequential. Uh, you know, Jim Davidson was hesitant to draw sort of sweeping conclusions about a best case scenario or worst case scenario for the industry. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, if the Democrats reclaim the House in November's midterm elections, uh, bills like the one filed by Claire McCaskill might see the light of day. And that could be very bad for uh, pharma advertising. That said, you know, we have seen plenty of threats already, and uh, they haven't uh, come to fruition. Which means that Gut Guy, TV's beloved irritable bowel, will live to see another day. You never know when IBSD will show up. So everyone got mad at Goldman Sachs this week, and it had nothing to do with subprime mortgages. It all came about when Goldman Sachs posed a very loaded question. Quote, is curing patients a sustainable business model? 
That question was posed in an April 10th report called the Genome Revolution. And the report went on to say that, you know, of course, these one-shot cures uh, could bring tremendous value for patients and society. But there's also a drawback, and that is the challenge it poses for genome medicine developers looking for sustained cash flow. And so the one sentence takeaway basically was like, man who loves money is concerned that curing patients doesn't make enough money. And so thus that very screenshotable take got super wide distribution from people on Twitter, where it could be accompanied by statements that were basically like, ugh, capitalism. And of course, it didn't help that it came from the worst possible messenger, right? This is Goldman Sachs, probably the most villainously perceived uh, entity in the world when it comes to investment banks. You may recall that Matt Taibbi famously described them as a vampire squid digging their blood funnels into the mouths of anything that smells like money, if I'm remembering that diction correctly. Um, and then, of course, they're perceived as basically being a place run by a succession of bald white men in fancy suits who make a lot of money. I think it's worth beyond the 280 character takes, though, unpacking some of the issues that this question raised. You know, there's an important discussion to be had here about how industry incentives favor the development of drugs for chronic diseases, uh, not cures. And beyond that, you know, whether curing disease is the real problem with uh, business models in the industry. So one illustrative bullet point from recent news is GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the most recognizable names in the drug industry. They sold off their entire pipeline of gene therapies, which could be one-time cures, and basically they did it because the economics weren't great. And as MIT Tech Review's Antonio Regalado pointed out in a smart piece on this subject, Glaxo is giving up some real potential here. One of the therapies it handed off is Strimvelis. That's a therapy for a rare immune deficiency that's been curing kids, and we don't use the word cure often in this business. And in the pipeline, they had a sort of DNA fix for a particularly horrific-sounding rare disease in which sufferers lose their ability to talk and walk and think before eventually dying. And so the issue here that Glaxo presumably was concerned about is that companies can and do run out of patients as they get cured. And so the really obvious case study for this is Gilead Sciences, which of course markets a drug that is basically a cure for hepatitis C. So Gilead famously paid $11 billion back in 2011 to get its hands on what would become Sovaldi, that curative drug. And so far, sales are more than $54 billion. That's a lot of revenue. And that ROI would suggest that curing hepatitis C is fantastic for the bottom line. But if you come at it from the sort of vampire squid perspective, you would look at the revenue they brought in hep C and say, well, that's only half of what they made treating HIV, for which, of course, there is no cure, as a chronic disease for about 14 years. And Adam Forestine, in absentia, but always active on Twitter, uh, as I assume he will be even from the grave, he pointed out that from 2004 to 2017, Gilead made $100 billion in HIV. And those sales continue in perpetuity until those drugs go generic. Chronic disease treatment is just a really good business compared with curing stuff. Gilead is not running out of HIV patients. You know, that said, though, there's an important distinction between what happened with Gilead and what Goldman Sachs is pointing out about gene therapy. Yeah, exactly. So what often goes unaddressed in why Gilead's revenues sort of peaked and have waned in hepatitis C is the old-fashioned competition that people who love capitalism love to bring up. That drug is cheaper now than it was when it was first approved because AbbVie has one, Bristol-Myers has one, etc. And so there's sort of a race to the bottom to stay on formularies at pharmacies. And so Gilead just had to give discounts. So the idea of weeping for them because they cured the disease doesn't tell the whole story because their competitors are curing hep C too, and then Gilead just has to compete on price. 
It'll be interesting to watch, though, uh, what'll happen if more than one of the gene therapies that are currently in the pipeline uh, for hemophilia actually wins approval. You know, what, what happens then when competition enters that market? Whereas in the field of gene therapy, we haven't really seen competition yet. Uh, I think an important space to watch here will be hemophilia, where um, there are a number of companies developing gene therapies uh, to try to treat it. It'll be interesting to watch if more than one of those actually wins approval. And then we'll find out just how good a business curing disease really is. So speaking of capitalism, a weird thing happened with a drug price this week. A company called Ultragenics won FDA approval for a drug that treats a super rare form of rickets. And when it came time for Ultragenics to tell the world how much that drug would cost, they gave a very strange answer. Basically, they answered with a bunch of math. Right. So this is going to be kind of complicated and bear with us, but we're going to run through it very quickly. It's important to know that there are actually two types of drug prices. There's the list price, which is the one you see in headlines. And then there's the net price, which is the actual cost that the system pays after discounts and rebates. And that price is literally a trade secret. And what's weird about Ultragenics is they publicize the so-called secret price, not the headline one. And that's interesting because, as we mentioned, these net prices are usually confidential and they're almost always inconsistent from payer to payer due to competition and discounts, etc. So, like, by coming right out and saying something other drug companies only hint at, Ultragenics is arguably giving up negotiating power with the middlemen who will decide whether their drug gets reimbursed in the first place. That sounds like a terrible business decision. Why would the CFO allow them to do this? That's a great question, and people have talked about that. I think the prevailing theory is that that will appease those middlemen I was talking about. So pharmaceutical benefits managers, or PBMs, like Express Scripts or CVS, they are the gatekeepers of whether you can make any money with your drug. So by coming right out and disclosing the net price, you've accomplished two things. One, you promise a big rebate and thus maybe appease those middlemen. And two, you literally put a smaller dollar figure in the press so that you don't necessarily get pilloried for an expensive drug like everybody else does. And it's looking like those middlemen are appeased, judging at least from one interview. Uh, The outspoken drug price critic Steve Miller, chief medical officer of the PBM Express Scripts, Uh, told Forbes that he's happy with how Ultragenics handled this. You know, he said that the price of the new drug is not inexpensive, but he said that they were being responsible. And this is the fun part of the whole horrible, complicated bramble that is drug pricing. A fun fact about PBMs is that they make really good money off of expensive drugs. Those rebates that we're talking about, they're not always passed down in full to Express Scripts clients. Express Scripts won't tell you how much they pocket, but basically the larger discounted rebate that a company like Ultragenics is willing to offer, the better Steve Miller's margins are going to look. It's sort of a reminder, I think, that PBMs and drug makers aren't really adversaries, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you dig into those lawsuits against insulin makers, they're basically taking a page from how the feds took down the mob. Like, not to, not to get too deep into it, but as I mentioned, the more the price of insulin goes up, the more the rebates go up. And so drug companies make money, PBMs make money. Diabetics lose money. And I think this whole conversation illustrates just how insanely complicated and counterintuitive so much of the drug pricing debate is. And now the king of complication and nuance, President Donald Trump, is going to talk about it. The drug companies, frankly, are getting away with murder. And we want to bring our prices down to what other countries are paying. Yes. So on April 26, President Trump is going to deliver what has been billed as his first major speech on drug prices and some sort of strategy, I guess, to bring them down. Rebecca, what do you think we're going to hear? Well, why don't we start with what we're not going to hear? 
I don't think we're going to see Trump call for the government to negotiate the cost of drugs for Medicare. Uh, what I think we'll be more likely to hear is something pretty nuanced and not super Trumpy. Uh, I think Politico reported that we might see uh, advocating for Medicare and Medicaid demonstrations to test uh, new ways of, of paying for drugs. This would be a small scale project like allowing some states to try it out. Um, and that's based on what we saw in the president's budget request. And I feel like we make this point all the time and it's boring and I'm sorry for anyone who has to deal with it. But there was a time where the idea of Donald Trump tweeting about drug prices or speaking about drug prices, saying drug and price in the same paragraph would send biotech stocks down. And now it just feels like this has all become a paper tiger thing and no one's actually concerned about any pending legislation or executive action that's going to like actually harm the drug industry. But I think the important variable to think about here is the looming midterms in November. They're this blank canvas. And I think the idea of a blue wave or kind of, you know, what other conventional wisdom is being thrown around is an important context for this speech. Trump campaign saying that he was going to bring down drug prices. And that was a very successful message with a, a populist audience. And it's still a successful message with populist audiences, which is to say that someone who might actually do something legislatively about drug prices might make that same appeal to that same populist electorate, and then they might get elected, and then we might be talking about something completely different come January. And that does it for this week's episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to say thank you to Jeff Delvisio and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, whether you have comments, questions, suggestions for future topics, recommendations that we never bring Adam back, whatever. You can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. And we appreciate your feedback. See you next week. Next week.